Hello and welcome to this week's PropCast in association with Property Week. And we're talking about hotels. We've got three cracking guests today to cover off different parts of the market and the investment market development, looking at different operators and looking at the approaches that investors are now taking as we move into a new cycle. It's an absolute pleasure to be joined by Jackie Newstead, partner at Hogan Lovells, by Richard Serviday, who's a director at Area, and Derek Griffin, who's Whitbread's head of acquisitions. Thank you guys, all of you for coming in. Jackie, let me start with you. And we've had many conversations over the years on everything, really, not just hotels. But we're obviously coming out of a cycle, coming into a new cycle. Obviously, the year thus far has thrown up a number of curveballs. And as we head into Q4, things aren't looking particularly pretty in many parts of the economy. The growth that we've seen in hotels over the last few years, how sustainable is that going to be? as different factors driving the economy seem to take bite over the next few months? Well, I think you've picked on a good question there, Andy, because the hotel industry, the leisure industry generally, is facing exactly the same challenges as the rest of the economy. It's equally exposed to rising interest rates. It's exposed to inflation. So maintaining the sort of recovery that the hotel industry has seen over 2022 in particular is quite a challenge. So even though, as I'm sure Derek will tell you in a minute, there's been good growth in rates, that growth is being challenged by increased costs. And depending on which sector of the hotel market you're looking at, those costs will bite significantly in the top end sector, perhaps less so in the sort of middle or budget market, but real challenge ahead for the industry. And from an investor perspective, the kinds of clients that Hogan Lovells acts for, are they getting excited right now? Are they rowing back from hotels the way that people seem to be running scared of offices? Most investors will be looking at the different asset classes in different ways. However, I've seen recently, whilst the institutions perhaps are less keen on investing in real estate at all, including the hotel sector, Mm. there's definitely more activity from perhaps the sort of owner-operator part of the hotel sector. Because they've got less debt and they've got more control. They have more control. So what they're not relying on is a third party producing a profit. They're relying on themselves to produce that profit. So they perhaps have more confidence in their ability to invest because they control both ends of the Mm. equation. So Derek Griffin, Whitbread's got lots of profits, lots of confidence at the minute. And really looking at your performance over the last three quarters and over the last few years, in fact, you've kicked the lights out really by most metrics of performance. As Jackie Newstead says, it's rate levels, not occupancy that have been driving performance. You'd agree with that, wouldn't you? But my question is, how are different parts of the market being affected and how specifically will Whitbread be looking over the next year? Yeah, hi there, Andrew. I mean, I think really the hotel market generally and Premier Inn specifically have come out of COVID pretty well. But I think that going forward, we're really looking at how we control our margin of operation 
you are correct. There are obviously operational pressures across the hotel market, but I think different sectors have different exposure to that. So I think that Whitbread's position is a favourable one in that we're able to try and control our margin in the kind of budget sector. It's much more difficult, I would say, in the five-star market. You are more exposed. So I think that looking forward, Whitbread is very focused on how you control that margin They're looking at really maintaining the levels of service, but still trying to maintain a margin. And I think one of our recent trading statements reflected the fact that we were on top of it and we need to be. And working from home perversely seems to have been a bit of a boon for you in the fact that you've got more people coming into the office for limited periods of time. And presumably those people are going to be staying in some of your properties whilst they're coming in and out of the office. As we came out of COVID, there was lots of stories about how it would impact on the use of hotels, particularly in the cities. As we came out of COVID, big metropolitan areas, and London in particular, was the slowest to come out because of changes to work patterns. Now, whether they're permanent or whether they'll move back to how they used to be before COVID is a different question. But certainly, to start with, the business sector was much lower. And I think over time, we've gone back to balancing, really, our overall business is 50-50. So I think you can overplay that as we speak now and looking forward to the second half of the year, London is strong and is probably leading the performance, whereas, say, a year ago, it was struggling a bit compared to other parts of the market in our estate, which dealt with a staycation, things like that. London is now back. I mean, obviously, I'm guessing you clearly have direct relationships with corporates where accountancy firm X or law firm Y will take a block of rooms off your hands. But how is the wider consumer market driving? I mean, for example, are you seeing more interest in rooms in cities between Monday and Friday than you would have previously seen. Can you correlate that with some of these changes we're seeing in office occupancy? I think that's quite nuanced and you'd need someone else in Whitbread to explain the subtleties of the makeup of the business. At a kind of higher level, which I'm more familiar with, the key point I would say is that historically the mix of business is 50-50 business and leisure that part has come back to that level. So Mm. the business bit has recovered. How the shoulder nights and the peak nights have changed, I think broadly speaking, it has reverted to type. It's slightly different in different markets, but it's kind of settled back. It's normalised to pre-2019 levels. And Richard Serviday, tell us about area. What does that business do? Who do you work with? What problems are you guys solving? We predominantly work with a mixture of investors and occupiers and our business focuses in the bed space, you know, area stands for alternative real estate advisors. So our specialism is within the hospitality markets, the student and BTR. The problems that we have faced mainly over the last couple of years have been to do with building fabric and enhanced due diligence that investors have undertaken as part of the buying process. Now it's really a focus on debt or lack of debt and how pricing has moved very quickly 
as we've seen interest rates increase. Debt for what? Because many people that I speak to are getting crazy for debt. Debt is everyone's favourite new toy in real estate. So can you just explain that point a bit more? Because, I mean, even my gran, if she was still alive, would probably be launching a debt fund right now, given the level of appetite in the market. I think the difference to historic positions when people have talked about debt right now, as we've said, there is money available. There's money available for equity investors. There's money available to be borrowed at a rate. The issue that we have is, and if we focus on the hospitality space, the market over the last 10 to 15 years has been driven by UK institutions raising long income funds and looking to invest that money at a keen yield in return for long leases that are index linked. Yeah, There's been no link to debt because they're all equity investors and what we've seen is yields get keener and keener as interest rates have remained at naught point something yeah those yields were creating a nice margin over returns elsewhere well, cost capital zero so you're exactly. making three percent you're still up exactly so typically then and it's interesting i was having this discussion with an investment chap yesterday morning over breakfast and we were talking in the context of single family resi and he was saying that where they might have transacted a small portfolio at maybe 3.8% before all the sort of mini budget stuff kicked in. Now that those sorts of schemes might be trading actually not that far off, probably mid fours, which doesn't seem like a huge shift given the risk-free rate has got up by 500, 600 bips. So my question is, the yields you described getting keener, where were they and where are they now? So I think that a lot of people get hung up on yield and, well, you brought it up, Richard. And, uh, so, um, but if we really look at the investors that are present today, yeah. there's more of a focus on IRR. And they accept they are buying an investment for a long period of time. With that, they accept that the market next year, five years, 10 years, will be very different to today. So they accept a trended return over a period of time. Rather that, than a running yield of 4 or 5%. Exactly. So... In some classes where you're potentially forecasting rental growth to be strong, to be consistent, your initial yield, your net yield will have moved, but not moved as severely in some of the other sectors. For example, we talk about offices. With residential, with student, at the end of the day, we have a supply demand issue in the UK. There are not enough student beds for students. There are not enough homes for people. So if you are looking at rents in that space, because you don't have enough, rents are going to keep on growing and that will be factored into for an investor. Offices, however, with the shift in working patterns, arguably we have too much office space and therefore rents will be coming down, as we have seen. Yeah, yeah. Can I just chip in something there? Because the other factor that you need to put in here is the change in bond yields as well. So over the last few years, because the bond yield rates were so low, real estate of whatever asset class became much more attractive because your return was looking pretty good compared with what you could get on a bond. Whereas now bond yields have gone up significantly in the same way as interest rates have. So your decision between put your money in a bond or put your money into some real estate is shifting. Yeah, and I think that's true. Also, Jackie Newstead, do your clients, investors, institutions, are they expecting rates to go back down or are they anticipating the next decade being actually a decade of volatility, unlike what we've seen in the last 20, 30 years? Because in the last 20, 30 years, everything's largely sort of gone up 
pretty much in a straight line, other than the odd nickel here for a Eurozone crisis, the odd nickel here for pandemic, largely rents have been going up in a straight line across most of the resi asset classes. Interest rates have been low for the last 12, 13 years. Inflation's been pretty low up until recently. Yeah, I'm not sure about over the next 10 years, but certainly in the sort of immediate term, all the people I'm talking to are expecting interest rates to stay pretty high longer than was predicted at the start of this year. But they're not high now, are they? That's the thing, is that by historical portions, they're actually just medium. Well, it depends how old you are. I mean, I'm old enough to remember interest rates at 17%, which was, you know, seriously scary. But for the last, I don't know, what, 10 years plus, they have been low. Yeah, okay, maybe 5 6 even 7% isn't that high. But, you know, if you ask the man in the street what it's costing him on his mortgage, he's going to be terrified at the idea of, no, you no, know, no, 6 no, 7%. That's a good point. And Derek, you were going to chip in there. Well, I think the interesting thing looking forward, which we'll try to do, is the supply of new hotels into the market and how that is impacted. Now, obviously, the hotel sector covers a wide range of things. But if you look in the sector we're in, which is the budget economy sector, which has been historically driven over the last 10 or 15 years by leased developments, and Richard alluded to that structure, which UK institutions largely funding, as we sit here today looking to the second half of the year and we glimpse beyond that, that market, which has supported the growth of number of brands, isn't there. So the question is, for a company like Whitbread, how do we respond to the current market to ensure that our growth ambitions, which have been going on for over two decades now, Mm. continue? Historically, we were in a good position because the Whitbread covenant, relatively speaking, is so strong. But in as, terms of your investment grade uh, rating. Investment grade, the traditional way that they would be assessed. Now, we think that that may not be as important in the future, but it certainly helps to still have the best kind of covenant in that sense. But there are other aspects to Whitbread's business that we need to bring to bear to think, how do we keep our pipeline of development and new sites going? So clearly we're a fortunate position that we've got a strong balance sheet so we can acquire some sites ourselves. Secondly, you know, we've got a history of a development expertise of building and developing our own sites. That's quite rare, isn't it, in your part of the market? I think in the hotel market, it is extremely rare and increasingly is going to be important going forward. There's a lot of cost you have to carry, though, to do that. Yeah, well, I think that's the reason why... But that works because of your scale. Because of our scale and the fact that we've got a strong balance sheet. Now, ultimately, though... We've got 83,500 rooms in the UK. The aim is to get to 125 as the end game for the UK. Over what period? Not over a period. It'll be as fast as we can do it, given market sentiments and how we can do it. So last year we opened 2,000. We'd like to open double that a year to move to the end. But the difficulty is, is we can't do that just with Whitbread money. You know, so at some point we need to work with people like Richard to understand how we can unlock other people's so money as well. 40,000 rooms, there's potentially a 40,000 room opportunity for partner capital. Yes. Richard Cervelli, what's that in cash terms? So I can see his brain working. Well, I'm, I'm trying to do the maths as well, but I'm not as smart as Richard, so I can't do it quite so quickly. It must be a couple of billion. As much as you would like to pay. You know, at least, you know, let's be clear. Historically, we've done it with a combination of other people's money, which is a leasehold deal, or our own. You know, we still own 
our own hotels and we will still do both. So we don't expect it all to be leasehold and we'll want to mix, but there is definitely an opportunity yeah. for people. And, and how sustainable is that growth, given where the economy is growing? Can the market bear 40,000 new rooms? Is that going to undermine your average rate? Every year we reassess what our network plan requirement is, and that's based upon understanding the whole UK bedroom market and the growth of the branded mid-scale and budget sectors in the UK is based on a structural change which ultimately over time the independent sector has declined and that continues to this day and has been exacerbated by obviously COVID mm. and the economic pressures we're on at the moment but actually if you look at the total UK bed stock today compared to 10 years ago actually it hasn't risen it's the makeup of the total. So the total itself usually historically accords with GDP growth. That tends to be the long one follows the other. Mm. But actually, over the last 10 years, the total bed stock in the UK has stayed the same. So that gives us confidence that actually we can continue with our business plan, which we've been doing for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of some of the legacy product, Derek, that you've had over the last two, three decades, how are you looking to reposition some of the older stock that maybe now sits outside your current network plan? When you've got an estate of 850 hotels that's been built up over time, you're constantly looking... There's a lot of toilet seats. There's always... Yeah, indeed, indeed. Lots of pillows. But there's a constant assessment of how we try to maintain and keep the estate relevant to the customer. So there's a big R&M spend, which Whitbread was R&M a, a, a repair and maintenance, which has to go into the estate, which Whitbread can afford to fund. Some people might be struggling for the reasons we talked about. Mm. There's constant room development, ID4, ID5. You know, we're constantly adapting it, Premier Plus rooms. There will, however, I've got no doubt in some point in the future, be some disposals of things that I know aren't big enough or no longer quite right for the market anymore. Mm. And maybe by disposing of something, may give us an opportunity to replace it with something in a better location, a bigger hotel. Mm. You know, I think they call it churning. You churn the estate. You yeah. get rid of that, this one and that one, creates a new opportunity here, and you can put something mm. exciting. And, and Richard Surveday, to your point on the shortage of student beds, maybe some of the hotels that Derek no longer requires could be used for that purpose because they'd like to be in pretty good locations. Well, I mean, that would be a fantastic alternative use. The problem that you always face is planning restrictions. It's very hard to get student through planning. Invariably, you need support from... Even now, even given the cities, we had Tom Reardon, boss of Leeds Council, on a few months ago, and he was talking about the brain gain in Leeds, similar conversations in most cities. People surely are seeing the economic benefits of keeping students in towns? Maybe, maybe not. I think for all the positives that students bring to a location from a local authority financial perspective, you know, you're not getting council tax students invariably we've all been through the process you know late nights are i think you had a slightly uh, heavier time than most students <laughs> now richard nowadays they, they go to bed by 10 o'clock they well, don't drink they don't swear they play computer games they're, 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 no, not not true my daughter's a student at the moment she's up all night they're, don't worry they are there's a lot of synergies in the bed space however it's the intricacies of a specific location that really dictate what that building will be used for. And that's becoming more key from an yeah. investment perspective. And I think, to be fair, some of the stock that we may be churning over time would be like a 25-bed hotel, not next to a university. It'd be for other things, I suspect. Yeah, yeah. And we were talking about CapEx, we're talking about churning, we're talking about repositioning buildings. The other obvious opportunity right now is offices, right, Derek? Yeah. To what degree 
are modern offices going to be up to the standard you require? Because the market shifted in hotels over the last 30 years. And by definition, offices that are going to be vacant are going to have a discount against them. They're going to be the brown ones. They're going to be pretty poor quality kit not necessarily in the best places. So how are you going to make office conversions? Or are you just not going to bother? No, not at all. I mean, I think historically, office conversions through various cycles have been an absolute key part of how budget hotels and Premier Inn in particular have grown in big provincial cities and indeed London specifically. One extreme, you have County Hall has a Marriott at one end and a Premier Inn at the other. Mm. That's an office conversion. You know, we're in central London here. There's numerous sites that I've been involved in where you can convert those 60s office buildings. I think the key is not all buildings are the same. It's all to do with key specifics like floor to ceiling heights, things that aren't appropriate for offices. And we know that offices are changing very quickly at the moment. They do allow... But things that you need in resi, you don't always need in hotels, do you? I mean, a lot of these new sort of snazzy, tiny hotels that we've been seeing come up over the last... Mm five, six years, it would charge you 400 quid to stay in a cupboard. Don't have any natural data. Don't know any of those. Well, no, not your brands, of course. Uh, I won't no, name, I, let's not name and shame know, people I, with bad hotels, but we all I, know who I'm talking well, about. Well, they're charging 400 pounds and the customers keep coming back. They can't be that bad. But what I would suggest is, is that you have to adapt to buildings and it'll either meet the specification that you have for your customers or it won't. But those okay. standards that you have, they're fixed, cemented brand standards and you don't yeah, shift on uh, those. No. So acoustics, things like that are absolutely fundamental. So when you get to a position where you know you're looking at an office building that on all other metrics is perfect, you can adapt it, it can be redeveloped. Mm. But if it's sitting over, you know, the underground that's a couple of metres below it and you can't isolate it and fix that problem, we can't do that building. Mm. But it means there are examples of buildings we haven't done because of that. But given the right opportunity, we've just opened the hub at Clerkenwell, which we did ourselves. We built it over Thameslink. Mm. It also means if you're you're staying next to Jackie's daughter who's partying all night, you'll still be able to get some sleep. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) So sticking with this point on repositioning offices, how much of an opportunity are we going to see over the next year? Because I'm interested in some of the sorts of term sheets you're seeing now around office refinancing. We had a chat from Savills on Doug Jameson several months back telling us about what I described, paraphrasing him as a death spiral in many office markets in North America. And that's largely being triggered by refinancing or lack of it. Is that same barrier going to pop up over here? What are the sorts of terms you're now seeing on office refis? And is that going to create an opportunity for Derek and other hotel people? Office refis is not a specific sector that I get directly involved in because my real estate finance colleagues tend to do that. But certainly... From but anecdotally, what, how, how... Yeah, anecdotally, from what they have said, you're looking at potentially a reduction in the amount that will be lent. So let's say you've got a loan currently of 100. Mm. You know, it might be you're only going to get 60. So that's sort of fairly drastic reduction in the amount that the lender is prepared to refi. And the increase in rates, you know, it might be double. So yeah, yeah. pretty horrendous. So that is definitely going to spin out some assets that just are no longer sustainable financially. Yeah, I mean, from an acquisition perspective, we know this is happening because we're at the front end. We take phone calls, you know, where people who own office assets, suddenly the phone starts ringing to Whitbread and Premier Inn when it hasn't done for five or six years because their market's softening. 
It's the same as happened before. Mm. You know, so you look at some of the stuff around the city that we did for Hub and Premier Inn, and those sites, which have now been open 10 or 15 years, were part of the last cycle. And some of the people that are a bit older and more experienced, but they're still dealing in the city office market, the phone's going, hello, hi, Derek, how are you doing? We haven't spoken for a while. Hello? No, because we're still here. And their market's changed again, and it gives an opportunity. Yeah, because, I mean, secondary offices are the product that no one wants to go anywhere near at the moment. Richard's probably got some thoughts on this, but there's a real difference between your nice spanking new top grade. Where's Hogan Lovell's moving to, Jackie? Well, we're moving to a new building across the road, which will be as green as they come. Is that because you're halving your footprint? <laughs> like no. Most law firms. No, well, we're, we're not actually. We're not halving our footprint. We're probably being slightly less than we I'm, are I'm talking about a big law firm with two yeah. letters to its name. You won't name them, listeners, but you can Google them and find out who they are. Just going back to the point I was trying to make there, there is a real difference between that top-grade space and what occupiers want mm. and the secondary that doesn't meet those standards. Yeah, it's the K-shaped recovery we keep talking about on this podcast where that bit is good, that bit's bad. Yeah, Richard, the obvious question then is, if no one wants these secondary offices, what happens to them and at what price? And are they the sorts of things that people will be able to use? How would a Whitbread or a Unite or something like that be able to repurpose something? I think we've just touched on a couple of areas there that are paramount both on an occupational perspective and investor perspective, in the same way that Derek mentions that people are making phone calls that perhaps haven't made those phone calls for a number of years, we are very much experiencing a change. And that's same from an investment point of view. If you look at the transactions that have occurred this year, we're moving into Q4 and we look at track records and there have been barely any repeat investors. And what we've seen this year are people with money generally cash purchases, taking advantage of accessing stock that they've not been able to access for the last 10 years because they've been priced out. So they're seeing value. That, in some instances, has helped maintain an element of yield and value because... Mm, There's so few transactions. Exactly. And they want to buy well, so they will pay a price that they think is value because it's cheaper than what they could have done over the last five years. And they're buying with cash, so they're not reliant on debt. And how do you see the investment market changing over the next few years, given some of the changes we've seen recently around pension funds, given everything you've described or discussed in this conversation around different parts of the market, whether that's with lease structures, management structures or owner-occupiers, how are investors looking at those different sorts of opportunities and what would the makeup of those investors be over the next cycle? Well, there's several different pots of capital all doing different things. And from a leased hotel perspective, it's locking on to the pot of capital that's going to invest in your space. So we talked about offices and how some of those tired offices, where will they fit in the market? Well, there will be money out there looking to invest and they'll want 8 9 10% plus and they'll get that in offices because they'll take the view that they can let them to somebody and they can really sweat them and manage Not them Not Hogan Lovells, though. Not Hogan Lovells. And then you've got other money. And in the same way we would have had a conversation 15 years ago, nobody would have understood what a long lease fund would look like or where that long lease fund... Well, Sean Leslaw did, and we'll have to get him on the podcast to talk about that. But I take your point. But we saw a material shift, and then we saw a period of everybody 
putting their money into long lease funds and the long lease funds in turn looking to invest into real estate. Where can I get long leases with indexation? Leased hotels work nicely. And we saw development. And you think that development and that sector boomed as a result of all that money queuing up? Is that sort of tail wagging dog? It would have only invested if the fundamentals. It's a bit of both, you know. You've got the, the products are becoming available when you have Premier Inn and other budget brands looking to grow their portfolio mm. through a leasehold model. So, well, on the whole, they've been pretty sustainable, actually. Unlike other things where tailors wag dog, you think about expensive burger chains and other areas in the retail market. Well, the fundamental those... needs to be right for the operational product. And I think for the reasons we talked about before, there is a structural reason why branded budget and economy hotels play an important part, not the only part, but important part of the UK's bedstock. Mm. And Jackie, you said in terms of some of the deals that you're advising on now, how are they differing from the things you might have been doing in previous cycles? I mean, you've been at Hogan Lovells for 39 years, I think. So you've seen a few cycles. I've had the pleasure of knowing you for the last 18 years. And um, yeah, I was very grateful. Here's my anecdote in terms of parties. When I left the BPF in dark depths of early 2010, where Liz Peace had written a sign on the fridge saying there was no money left, a bit like the one that Liam Byrne did at the Treasury, Hogan Love was very generously sponsored my leaving to, which is an act of grace that I'll never forget. Um, <laughs> and um, we've had many, many discussions over various sorts of drinks over the years, Jackie. But I'm interested in deal flow now versus previous cycles. And what are the kinds of things that you're advising clients on that you might not have had to do previously? Well, for start off with the things that we have done traditionally. So the pure investment market, I think what we're seeing now is perhaps more owner operators coming into the market, yeah. which we touched on earlier when we mm. were talking about that. I think the institutions at the moment are pretty much out of the game. And a lot of that's to do with risk profile. Because their fingers have been burnt on things like retail and offices or just because it doesn't work for them structurally or both? Well, I think a lot of them, they have in their portfolios an exposure to the leased market. What they tend not to have is an exposure to the luxury end, which is a very different market. So leased market works you know, in the same way as any other asset. It's a rent. So the fact that it's a hotel is largely irrelevant. In some cases, yes. The bit of the market they don't have exposure to, as I say, is the luxury market where your risk profile is very different. And quite a lot of the institutions have considered that over the years. But because they owe their duty to their pensioners or policyholders, they take a different view of risk. And therefore, it's a bit too far up the risk curve to go with the, okay, I'm going to just rely on the profit I get from this hotel. Mm. Also, the capex risk on those hotels is huge. because oh, again, Enormous, enormous. You're not just talking a new lick of paint every few years. Often those sorts of hotels, anything that's fashion-led, comes out or goes out often as quickly as it's come in. Absolutely right. And also, particularly in London, for example, at the moment, you know, you're constantly getting new, very new shiny hotels coming through, which then puts pressure on the existing stock. Mm, and if right. they haven't refurbed in the last couple of years, they might end up finding their losing custom. Earlier in the summer, we went to see Guns N' Roses in Hyde Park, along with all the other Hyde Park things, Bruce Springsteen. And I had actually won a hotel stay at one of the previous Property Week Awards. It's a couple of years ago, actually. It was a charity auction for Save the Children. 
and the Property Week Awards, because of COVID, was taking place in early December. And I'd managed to forget my wife's birthday. And luckily, this auction was taking place on the 2nd of December, on my birthday. So I'm thinking, okay, what can I both afford and win in this auction that's going to sort of satisfy some kind of quasi offer of a birthday gift and the one thing that came up was a couple of nights stay in the Grosvenor house with some afternoon tea so I shoved my paw in the air and managed to win it and we forgot about it until we had a baby in between and that wasn't really conducive to boozy afternoon teas in Mayfair but when the Guns N' Roses gig came up we thought surely they're not going to have any spare spaces that night anyway we phoned them up and they did and we stayed there but it was a very convenient walk back after a few glasses of wine over GNR. But I tell you, the rooms could do a bit of a clean-up and that's not going to be a cheap job. No, well, I don't think anything's cheap at the moment. The other bit, they're just continuing from, well, what's different? We're seeing quite a lot of conversions. So repositioning of hotels, perhaps, where you have got an operator that's got the cash to do a full CapEx programme to reposition that hotel. Up or down or same? A bit of up bit of same mm. it's hard it's, it's hard up. it's hard to go up when you've been established in a particular category though isn't it it depends easy I mean, to go down i say that yeah. as a british airways user i don't um, know but- i mean i've got one hotel where we advised the owner on acquiring the hotel last year and they've terminated the arrangements with the previous operator mm. and are completely repositioning it up a grade it'll be a completely different product when it's finished. Hmm. I think one thing to add on that, which we've seen become more at the forefront over the last six to 12 months, is actually banks willing to lend money with a green theme. So by taking a hotel and repositioning it, Hmm. you're not knocking it down, you're not doing something else, you're enhancing. But as long as you're building ESG credentials into your refurbishment, you actually get a better rate of borrowing. How much of that is marketing guff versus actual... 100%. 100% marketing guy. No, I think we've moved on a lot. I think a couple of years ago, it was marketing, it was a buzzword, Mm. it was a theme that everybody wanted to use for leverage. I think now, actually, the real estate world is pretty good. Yeah, I think so. And I think in the lease market, probably the current financial problems have slowed it down a bit. But, you know, green leases and other bits are what accords with what Whitbread wants anyway. So we were signing up to things which really meet our corporate requirements. Mm. I mean, just going back to the other point there, talk about the fancy big hotels opening in London and the supply. You know, I think that's one area and the repositioning is another. But I think overall... People need to take care of not overstating new supply because I think the fundamentals of the funding market at the moment, all levels and the cost of capital mean that there may be a whole load of sites that are on the pipeline of people and saying they're going to be developing and some of those aren't going to happen. So it's a word of caution. You know, I think quite a lot of stuff isn't going to happen, Mm. you know, Mm. and it may not come back as a hotel. It may come as a student. It may come as something else, but it's not necessarily going to happen so we think next year maybe the year after it'll be a bit lower particularly in london yeah i was going to say the other interesting thing though that we have seen over the last few months is that some of the international operators who basically pulled out in 2020 from the uk market altogether are now starting to show real interest again in opening hotels in the uk Mm. conscious of time everyone so just to bring things to a close now obviously you're going to say the mid-market is going to rule the roost over the next cycle but for those in the development side of the world that might be a bit exposed to a consent they can't build or a resi scheme they can't fund but might want to rework how can they potentially work with whitbread 
or others to make those things fly that may have become a bit stuck in the current market? Well, look, I mean, I can only speak for us. We've got an acquisition team and an acquisition program that's, you know, quite old. And people don't know about Premier Inn's growth in the real estate sector than they should do, really. Certainly, where schemes aren't going ahead as previously intended, people with planning permissions for hotels, definitely those are opportunities maybe to do something with Whitbread. And clearly, we've got to get them funded or sometimes we will buy them as well. So I think there is an opportunity. And with Whitbread's development expertise, it's a real advantage that we have to unlock some of those opportunities. Mm. Richard Serverday, final point from you. What are we going to see in the next 12 months? What do you see as being the big opportunity for investors? Where are those investors going to come from? I think the main focus that we think will be helping alternative capital enter the real estate sector. And when I say that, I think we've seen a shift from defined benefit pension schemes. That money has moved away from... It's moved away from risk. Well, exactly. And it's moved to the insurers that we've seen, that the two or three names that are very common now day to day, and that money will want to access real estate. And the difference now will be how do we create the product for them? And that's what we're going to be focusing on over the next few months. Jackie Newstead, final point from you then, following on from what Richard said around non-institutional sources of capital, given your global footprint and your heavy footprint in North America, is that creating an opportunity for more North American, more foreign capital to come here, or are they still a bit scared by Britain as an investment base? I think they're currently scared by what's happening with our inflation rates and interest rates. So I think there is a reluctance from the international investors just looking at the UK overall. I'm not sure I see them necessarily piling back into the market next year. The one area I think could generate some interesting transactions is where owners can't actually refi at a rate that's acceptable to them. So I think finally the insolvency industry is going to have a bit of a field day and I think it might not be called insolvency, it'll be a restructure of some sort, Mm. but I think that will push product out into the market. But I mean, I'd argue that it's a bit different from 2010 when the jaws of insolvency practices were wrapped around the neck of many parts of the industry and right now what you've got is a borrower issue rather than a lending issue. You've got people that often have good businesses, well-performing businesses that are just a little bit stifled by the cost of debt. And they, as you say, might just need a, maybe a light restructure rather than a heavy run through the long of insolvency. Mm. You know, that's where the opportunity will be, yeah. whether that's with different lending, whether that's with mm. different occupiers, different investors. That's the opportunity. Well, we'll have to keep the conversation going. But thank you very much, Richard Serviday from Area Limited. Thank you very much to Jackie Newstead from Hogan Levels. Thank you very much to Derek Griffin from Whitbread. Fascinating conversation. Lots to come over the next year. And clearly, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for people to move from offices to other things as that market continues to churn itself through. I've been Andrew Teacher from Montford. Thank you very much for listening. You can subscribe to Propcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, wherever you choose to get your podcast from, just search Propcast. Do share this with your colleagues. And if you've got any guest suggestions, please get in touch. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll see you again soon.